It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, this week, the inquest into the Stardust Fire was opened. On the 14th of February 1981, a fire broke out in the Stardust Disco in North Dublin, killing 48 young people who had gathered for a Valentine's night outing. The relatives of the deceased always refused to accept a ruling from the subsequent tribunal that arson was probably the cause of the fire. They fought literally for decades to have a hearing which they considered might access the truth of what actually happened. This week, their journey may have arrived at a hopeful junction. Joining me to discuss the week's events and how we got here is Irish Examiner reporter Sean Murray, who's been following this story, I think it's fair to say, for most of his journalistic career. Sean, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Mick. Two weeks in a row now, Sean, you, you, you were at the Hutch trial uh, last year, Jiz, you're getting about to the big stories anyway. And thanks very much for, for uh, taking the time to join us here. Tell me... Um, We'll come to the, the journey, and it has been some journey the families have been through in, in a minute. But tell us what happened in the last few days as the inquest opened. I think it's been a very interesting way for the inquest to begin. Um, we're, we're talking about the, the kind of largest inquests in modern Irish history. We're talk, like, there's 48 young people who died in a horrific tragedy. And this is the second time these inquests are being run. So it's kind of drawing on similar examples in recent years of Hillsborough, and of Ballymurphy, of, of, of tragedies of, of, of a large scale uh, themselves, where instead of going straight into the witness evidence and hearing about the, the night of the fire itself, we're hearing what have been referred to as pen portraits. So what they are is they're given each victim, a member of their family can come up and talk about their loved one, talk about their hopes and their dreams and talk about what kind of person they were. And it's it, it's been really emotional. It's been really harrowing stuff because they talk about in such fondness um, to such a great degree about their brother and sister and son and daughter. And then they turn to the night that it all changed, which was which was the early hours of um, Valentine's Day, nineteen eighty one. And it, like one of the things that just really struck me is that the way they're talking, it could have happened a year ago. It could have happened last month. The the, the pain and the suffering. And the, the grief that so many people feel, it, it might have lessened somewhat over the years, but it's still, it's still an open wound and it still affects so many people so deeply. So it's been, it's been a very humbling experience actually to, to hear those families. And we've only heard from a few so far. There, there, there is a lot more to go, um, on, on their personal experiences of that, of that awful event. And what strikes me about that, Sean, I'd be interested in your opinion, is is that, look, when, when a young person dies at any time, uh, their loved ones are going to carry that for the rest of their lives in some form. And like any form of grief, they, they just learn to carry it and get on with it. It'll always be there, but people just try to carry on their lives. But in this instance, we're talking about a scenario whereby effectively all of these families weren't able to have 
closure. They weren't able to go through all the stages of grief that we're all used to, that, that ultimately ends with a form of acceptance because, as far as they're concerned, their deceased loved ones never got justice. So they're speaking about them, I suppose, in that added context. This isn't just families who speak about this happened 40 years ago and I'm carrying it in a particular way, but they're speaking in terms of this has not closed. And as you say, I suppose, and, and you were there, an element of that makes it more immediate as you've been describing it. Yeah, like I, I use the phrase there, an open wound, and it's because of that lack of closure, I feel like it plays a big role in those wounds still being open. Like we're, we're talking 42 years on, the original um, Tribunal of Inquiry, and you know, Tribunal is obviously one of the, the largest forms of investigation the state can order. The conclusions, when you read them through, they say the cause of the fire might not be known and may never be known, but then it came to that conclusion that the more probable cause was arson. So so straight away, for loads of families, that was them being told, that was a, a working class North Dublin community being told that one of their own had caused the fire. And that's, a, that's an admission that they've never accepted because they they have different theories about why the fire started and they, they want to get the answers. They want to get to the answers once and for all. And I feel like there, there's a there's a consensus among a lot of them that this is this is the last great chance that they have to finally get those answers. Yeah, and I, what you mentioned, there, I think, is very notable as well. And and like the 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 judge who chaired the tribunal, Judge Ronan Keane, he went on to be Chief Justice. Somebody, it has to be said, who was very highly regarded for his diligence and his fairness in general in his career, and somebody who I have absolutely no doubt everything he he. Um, he ruled on and, and, and all that he analysed from the fire was done in complete good faith. And yet at the same time, there's context to everything. And you go back 40 years and the kind of deference that was there in society and our society in general. And as you said, I think it's difficult to escape and you might call it unconscious bias or whatever it was. This is a working class community and one wonders whether if it was in a different area whether it had happened, for example, in a gathering of lawyers or journalists or whatever, whether particular conclusions would have been reached without having a lot of uh, factual architecture to back it up. I, I think that's fair enough to say, and that's with no disrespect to the work of, of, of the man who chaired it. Tell us, Sean, where exactly is it taking place? So it's taking place in the pillar rooms on the grounds of the Rotunda Hospital in Dublin, the, the maternity hospital. I had not been in the building myself before, but I, I learned that it's where um, Constance Markovich was laid out in state when she died back in 1927. Uh, thousands of people turned out to see her there. I remember and it it's well. Quite, it, <laughs> I, I don't myself, but um, that was actually one of the sticking points for the inquest themselves because they needed a, a really large space because you're talking 48 victims up to 48 sets of families who at any stage might want to attend, might want to be there to witness proceedings. So that was quite a challenge to find a suitable venue at first. Um, it was the RDS that they had, but the contract ran out on that. And then this was the the alternative that they've chosen. But I think I, I think even it's good to have a venue that's uh, it's in Dublin city centre. It's accessible for all of the families. And um, when, when we're talking about parents of the deceased, they'd be quite well advanced in age now. So I, I feel I feel it was a, it was a good choice um, as a venue for these inquests because the the normal venue in the likes of store streets, they wouldn't be suitable for, for inquests of this kind. 
Absolutely, and right and proper, as you say, it's in the city centre and it's on the north side and it should be as feasibly possible close to to the the community rather than dragging them around the city. Um, And the format then, Sean, we're talking, we have the coroner there and impaneled jury. Is it 12 juries that's similar to court in that sense? Um, There's 15 members of the jury. Um, and they've been impaneled, and they, they, they will sit. They will sit throughout the evidence um, directed by the coroner. Now, the, the, it's a bit different to um, a normal, like criminal or civil trial. Um, one of the key differences, which um, the coroner drew attention to last week, which I, I found quite interesting, is that um, at inquests, uh, the jury also have the power to ask questions. So when we get to the witnesses proper, when we get to the evidence proper, um, obviously there will be counsel for the families who might want to ask a witness questions. But when all of those are finished, the jury themselves will get a chance to, to ask questions. And I feel, I feel that's, that's an interesting and important uh, element of it. And uh, obviously they will need to come to conclusions at the end um, in the same way that uh, a jury usually does. But the, the options available to them will, will be obviously be slightly different. That is very interesting. And... Then in terms of what exactly they can determine, can they say what the cause of death was? And in some instances, would that, by obvious extension, infer culpability? Obviously, that's down the line, but the, the, the coroner has, is clear that within the scope of what the inquest can look into, the cause of the fire is central within that. What, what were the circumstances that led to that fire starting in that club? And the, the jury will be asked to, to draw conclusions on that. Um, they'll be asked to draw conclusions on the, the kind of practices at the building at the time. They'll be asked to consider whether different actions on the night itself might have led to a different outcome. Um, and then they'll, the, the ultimate decision they'll be asked to reach is, is the, the manner of death for each person. Um, and that can obviously take, take several forms, um, including potential verdicts of, of unlawful killing, but that will obviously be for the coroner to direct the jury as to what they what options are available to them. And we're talking about a process that could go on for up to six months, I think. Yeah, I found it quite interesting that when you look at the original, the Keane Tribunal back in, um, now that got underway less than two months after the Twelve fire. Twelve days said the first public hearing. Yeah, yeah and, and, and they, they, they progressed, they progressed straight through. I think, I think, just an aside, I think there was there was like heavy pressure on on the government on Charles Hawley's government at the time to oh no you got you guys have to get to the bottom of this you have to investigate this so I think that was forefront of the mind but there was three hundred and sixty two witnesses at that original Keane tribunal there's around three hundred and fifty at these inquests forty two years on so yeah, that gives you a sense of of how in depth it's going to be. People might ask questions of, oh, all this time, how will they be able to get to the bottom of this if they didn't then? But it's, it's not going to leave a stone untorned that can be turned um, in, in terms of trying to, in trying to get those answers. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Okay, so Sean, just to take it back and those of us, I suppose, in journalism, whatever, and yourself in particular, have, have, having looked at it so closely, we're familiar with it. I actually remember as a teenager hearing about it and the whole sense of shock there was in the country at the time. But just for those who perhaps are not as familiar, take us through roughly, first of all, what happened that night and what we know about it. Yeah, I think I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, just, just to say for us that um, people who are old enough to remember um, the, the start of the 80s, everyone remembers the Stardust. If I, if I get a, into a conversation with a taxi driver and I'd mention it, if they were around then, they would tell me the story of, of, of when they heard it, what happened. My, my own parents say would, would have been young at the time, they remember it very clearly. Um, it was one of those horrible, enduring tragedies. And when you, when you put into context, the Stardust was a, a very popular uh, venue at the weekends, people would go there for, for a dance, they go there for a gig on Fridays and Saturday nights. Um, it would be predominantly people from that area of North Dublin, Artane and Coolock and Donny Kearney, but there was people who'd come from all over Dublin because there were, there were several venues that would play this kind of crack, but maybe not that many. So people would come from all over for this. So it, it was the Friday the 13th, 1981 was going to be a big night because for weeks they'd had heats for a disco dancing competition where people had been coming to strut their stuff to try and um, uh, win the crown, as it were. And disco dancing competitions, um, <laughs> from my research, were, were a big deal at the time. Um, on the Late Late Show, uh, I think starting off in 1980, it was the, the first Late Late Show of 1980, they had Ireland's disco dancing champion, a 19-year-old from Palmerstown who just won a grand in, in the competition and a, a Toshiba colour television, which I'm sure those, those two things were... Yeah, a lot of money then, 1980, yeah. Yeah, I imagine a grand for someone who was 19 back at the time. It would be, <laughs> might not be as much now, but it would have been at the time. So disco dancing was a huge thing and we're talking about uh, the final of one of those kind of competitions in the Stardust that night. So people were, were coming out from all over. Um, there was around eight 900 people there on the night and the, the night had progressed really well. The The... In the early hours of the morning, they crowned the, the king and queen of the, of the disco dancing competition. And it was just after half one in the morning that things started to go badly wrong. Some people started to notice um, a fire was developing. People started to feel around them the heat. People started to see sparks. And there was initially, like, not, like there was some awareness among some people, but other people maybe who were on the dance floor, who were dancing away, didn't notice that there, anything had gone wrong. Um, it was just after 1.40 a.m. that the first uh, 999 call was made. Um, but things spiraled really, really quickly. Within a few minutes of that 999 call, the whole place was ablaze. Um, the lights went out. People were, people were panicking and it, it, it was utter chaos. Um, when, when, when the dust settled, we, we, we know that 48 people sadly lost their lives as a result of this fire and over 200 people were injured. So you're talking... Uh, Maybe a third of the people who were there that night ended up either either dead or injured. So it was a, a horrific event, a, a horrific tragedy. Um, in the aftermath, there were, people would go to four or five funerals a day for their friends. There was whole 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 streets where there would be several people who had lost children. It was when 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 you talk to people who are from there, everyone remembers the the, the shock and the devastation and the the, the sheer numbness of of having. 48 young people and like the average age was was 19 and a half to lose so many young people in such a in such a horrific tragedy it's um it's kind of hard to fathom i think today 
anything like that happening. Um, and thank, thankfully, thankfully, we haven't had anything like that in a long time. But it's, it's, it's you, you can't really overstate just how horrific an event it was, I think. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. And uh, just uh, as an aside to that, one element to it, and I just became familiar with this through other work, as a result of the fire, it brought forward legislation in terms of fire safety in buildings in general. And it was basically the basis for a proper fire safety legislation in the whole construction industry, which went on and developed in its own way. And as we now know, was... uh, ignored largely during the Celtic Tiger years and the fortunate thing is that there was not an incident that um, led to any great loss of life through those years there was a couple of fires but well there was one fire in particular that a young couple lost their lives but uh, largely the, the Stardust was responsible for bringing in legislation to make places far more safer and um, it was only through shoddy building in that 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 didn't occur during the Celtic Tigers. And as we now know, there a few months ago, they've opened up a, 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 a scheme whereby people be reimbursed for having to bring their, their dwellings up to, the, up to the proper fire safety standard. All that flowed initially from what happened in the Stardust. From the human point of view and from the point of view of those who survived, Sean, the other thing I suppose I should not mention as you said, Charlie High, I think, was the Taoiseach at the time. This is bang in the middle of his constituencies. He was actually not far from where he's from himself. So, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot about Charlie High that has been written and a lot about the way he conducted himself in some respects, but one can well imagine that uh, this was personal even for him because he was actually from pretty close by to the area. But one way or the other, he immediately got moving, or the government did, in setting up this tribunal. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think um, an event this devastating demands answers and it demands uh, it demands swiftness of action. And that was what happened. Um, I, I think by the Tuesday, um, Charlie Hoy was before the doll saying that they were going to they were going to launch this tribunal of inquiry. And as as we we talked about, uh, Ronan Keane, um, who went on to be a Supreme Court judge, was was going to was going to direct that inquiry. Now, obviously, it, it, the the um, actual report is is well over a thousand pages, I, I believe, and it's it's as in depth as 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 you could maybe hope um, at the time. It was held over a period of months in, in the aftermath of the fire, and then it reported um, over a year later with its findings. Um, the, it's interesting. The coroner in this case has said that a lot of what Keane um, concluded will be accepted by the by the court in, in these inquests. But there's obviously um, a few of the central central conclusions um, that have been act, that have been so controversial that obviously won't be accepted and will be um, examined anew in, in these inquests. Yeah, I, I could well imagine that. As you say, one thing so comprehensive over a thousand pages, there would be a lot of what you might call uncontested facts. I suppose in terms of background, I think they sat that first public hearing was about twelve days after the fourteenth of February. And I think they sat until the following November. As you said, no. Uh, the the report was within a year. Now, I think it's fair to say that pretty straight away the families were very disappointed and annoyed with what emerged from that tribunal. Well, absolutely. Yeah, the family the families were were numb, they were in shock. We're we're talking at a time when um counselling wouldn't have been the, the go to um solution for a lot of people. Uh and in lieu of getting that proper support in, in other ways answers the truth to, as to what happened became an like a kind of all-encompassing need for these families they wanted to know what happened 
as I said, uh, throughout these thousand pages, they, they talk about um, particular theories about how the fire might have started. And again, in the conclusion, he says, while the cause of the fire is not known and may never be known, the more probable, in, in, in the words of the report, the more probable explanation is that it was started deliberately. Now, what this, again, when, when, when you add up the, the facts of what happened afterwards, it, it all feeds into the sense of uh, a lack of justice for families. So because of that um, probable arson uh, finding, the owner of the Stardust, Eamon Butterly, was able to take a, a court case against uh, Dublin Corporation, which is now Dublin City Council, uh, to get compensation for the damage to, that was done to his building. And he, he got quite a hefty payout. I think it was in the region of, of half a million pounds at the time. And this was at a time when uh, no so-called arsonist had been identified and at a time when families hadn't been compensated themselves for, for the pain and the, the hardship that they went through. But the owner of the building where their children died was compensated and was compensated to, to a large degree. So when you add up all of the events of the night with the subsequent events, it, it added to this, this enduring sense of, of, of unease and of anger about how things were done by the, the Irish state, how the Irish state treated these families. And it, it, it's a feeling that's persisted right up until today. And is Eamon Butterley still alive? He is. Uh, he has legal representation at the at the tribunal and his counsel will be able to ask questions of witnesses. And as you said, that was a crucial element, the fact that for, like just for argument's sake, for example, if the tribunal had found that the, the owner was culpable and that it was due to issues exclusively around a lack of fire safety, just for argument's sake, not suggesting it at all, in an instant like that, then the owner would be liable for civil action, presumably from, from the families of those who died and obviously the large number of injured people as well. Yeah, in that uh, hypothetical scenario that you've outlined, that would absolutely have been the case. Um, in, in lieu of that, um, the government was under pressure. We're talking mid-80s now, we're talking several years uh, had passed. They set up what was called the Compensation Tribunal, where people who had lost loved ones could apply to a state fund for compensation uh, of some sort. Now, for any family who sought compensation from this tribunal, they had to forego any civil case that they may have taken against Dublin Corporation or the state in any way right. in order to access this compensation payment. So again, that was just another example of families being feel like they were being told, here, go get your compensation, drop your legal case and we'll give you the compensation and you go over there and you you sit there and we'll give you the money and um, off you go, essentially. Um, yeah. that, that was a, a, another factor that rankled. Um, it wasn't until 1987 that that uh, compensation tribunal finished its work. So we're talking many years on, um, families of the 48 people who died um, all sought compensation, as well as um, the family members of two parents who apparently uh, died of, of shock and have died of grief in the, in the immediate aftermath of the Stardust fire, as well as all the other injured people. So it was one of those cases where the families felt like, okay, we're, we're being thrown this branch by the state and, that, and that's it. And we're, we're, we're going to have to gonna take what we're given and go away then in the immediate aftermath. So one outcome of the rulings and the way it developed was that the owner 
was not liable and presumably the owner was insured so his insurance company was liable or whatever. That was one outcome, ir- irrelevant to the, the reasons behind the finding but that was an outcome. And the second one then being in terms of families suing the state it was a question of, do you want to go through the whole legal process, the, the risk of losing, the cost, the stress, legal counsel, etc., or the state will give you a certain amount within particular parameters and uh, will make it easy for you. I mean, it, it, it tied things up nicely in one way. Not saying that was the intention, but that was the outcome. Yeah, exactly. Um, and even, even within that, there was um, there was disappointment in how that tribunal approached this work. Um, people might know the name Keegan, which is very synonymous with with Stardust. Yeah, um, Martine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Maria Martina Keegan died in the Stardust. Um, their sister Antoinette has been a, a key campaigner right the way through. Her father John was a big campaigner um, on this for the Stardust uh, families back in the eighties. He applied for compensation through that tribunal, and its conclusion was that. It couldn't compensate families for what it termed mere grief, Jeez. however intense that may be. So He lost two daughters. He lost two daughters in the fire. And John Keegan wasn't entitled to compensation and he actually died around the time that the compensation tribunal was winding up. So um, he may not even known that he had failed in his bid to, to get compensation for, his, for what was termed his mere grief. Yeah, I'm sure everything was done properly, but the whole thing has a whiff of sort of, again, I don't know, is it going back to the fact that uh, the Ireland of the days and the fact these people came from a working class community and and so much is at stake. There's just always was something off about the whole thing, notwithstanding intentions people may have had and what have you. But one way or the other, the families, they they persisted and, and, and they got along the way, I think, I think there was two separate reviews. Is that right? Yeah. Um, again, they 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 had from around the the two thousands, the early two thousands, the kind of campaign to try and come to these answers to try and find out kind of kicked up a, a gear a little bit again. Um, one of the reviews uh, that was initiated by the government after after sustained pressure from from families and and some good local reps like Tommy Bruin um, eventually led to the. The, that verdict of probable arson that led to that being kind of struck, stricken from the Dahl record that was over 15 years ago now. But I, I actually find it quite interesting that even though it recommended striking that from the record, it didn't recommend a new full inquiry into what happened. And then uh, similarly, it was a retired judge, Pat McCartan. I think it was in 2013 or it could have been slightly later. Um, he also was asked to just look at what was being put forward again and see if there was cause to to reignite and restart these fresh uh, inquiries. And again, the conclusion was it, it might not lead to the answers that people sought. So it, it was advisable not to carry out those reviews. And I think a, a key switch in, in, in the family's kind of tactics and how they were going about things were when um, Phoenix Law, which is a, a, a firm based in the north, when, when they got involved, and instead of pushing for, for new tribunals or new inquiries, whatever form uh, they might take, because rem- I, I think we, the Irish state won't, doesn't like to go back over things yeah. where it's draw, drawn a line under in terms of, in terms of tribunals, etc. They switched their tack and they said, okay, we're not going to ask for a new tribunal. We're going to ask for new inquests. We're going to ask for new inquests to determine how these people died. 
Um, and I think that's, 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 that was where there was a proper momentum shift because at the original inquests that were held uh, for, for, for the people who died in the Stardust, uh, again, happening around the same time as the, as the Keane Tribunal, what the Attorney General said in 2019, uh, the way he phrased it was, there was an insufficiency of inquiry at the original inquests. So when, when they looked at the original inquest, they said this wasn't looked into as properly or as well as it could have. So that was the route, that was the way that they could finally get this looked again at, at last. And I, I, I mean, the, the Attorney General said that in 2019, that fresh inquests would be in the public interest. Um, he referenced the kind of analogies that the that Phoenix Law, the, the family's legal team, had drawn with Hillsborough. Um, and obviously that horrible tragedy um, that affected uh, affected the, the Liverpool fans in, in in that situation and ordered the fresh inquest. But then we're talking 2019 and we're now 2023. So even with the fresh inquest being ordered, it's been such a long road to, to get to this point where it's actually gotten underway. And do you have any sense, Sean, that in doing that, was the state kind of willing to have an open door pushed in at this at that stage uh, the comments you there from the, from the attorney general that they, that they nearly were looking at this and saying yeah okay something has to be done and go down this route was it, was there a sense of that in it i think so because they made an argument that this was such a horrific tragedy that uh, as i said at the top everyone remembers where they were when they heard about the stardust it's in the public interest to get answers to what happened here kind of once and for all, if that's possible. And the, the Hillsborough inquiry showed that that was possible um, to, to come to conclusions about what had happened um, with, with, a, with a large time removal, as, as it was at the time. I think it was well over 20 years. And when those inquests uh, reported back, we've had, um, although this wasn't referenced by the Attorney General, we had Bally Murphy inquests as well um, that have taken place. So the it has been shown that even at a large time remove, um, we can get to, to some conclusions about what happened in, in tragedies such as this. So I feel it was the Irish state saying, okay, yeah, we'll, we will look at this again and we will go this route that families have really long sought after. Yeah, the one thing about that that strikes me as well, though, is that um, we're still talking 42 years and, and uh, the cost... The, the, the original tragedy obviously is the worst. It's the horrendous tragedy. You lose people, young people lose their lives. But the families and those who had to pursue justice, what it has cost them over the course of, of at least half a natural lifespan in pursuing this in the sense of injustice, in, in the stress, in, in, in the, the burden of believing that their loved one's death has not been properly recognised that's a huge toll on effectively a community uh, that they have to carry that that long. And to me, that's a very sad reflection. The state, just briefly, it's not too dissimilar from the Kerry Babies case in Joanna Hayes. 1985, that tribunal ruled. She finally got her um, apology, I think, from the doll. I think it was 2020. 2019, 2020, thereabouts, you know, 35-odd years again. You're talking about decades and, and to some extent that inability of the state to face up to the fact that people have been wronged and that there's a certain duty to, as quickly as possible, at least try to set up some kind of a forum where they might get justice as they see it. It would strike me, you know. Yeah, like that. That's like well, as as we're speaking. Um, I've been there for the pen portraits from eight families so far. 
So that's eight of 48 of the people who died. And it, it, it's no overstatement to say just it's been an absolutely harrowing um, but really important thing to be able to witness and listen to. Like the, the courage of these families getting up and delving into the, the, the worst events of, of, of all of their lives and, and, and really delving into and explaining. Like I, I was hearing um, testimony from, from three sisters of victims today and they were talking about just how it affected their mothers and their fathers. We're talking in 1980s Ireland fathers who unable to articulate just how much pain they were in might have turned to alcohol instead. Mothers who wouldn't be able to hear the name of, of the loved one who died with, with, without, without getting unspeakably upset. Um, and just that constant, that constant niggling to be like, well, what, could, could something have gone differently? Why, why were they in this place and why did this place, why did the fire happen in this place and could something have turned out differently? It's, it's this constant, constant in their head. They, they wonder if my loved one had died, he was only 18, would he have uh, had a wife, would he have kids? It's all of the, all of this emotion pouring out, and I, I feel I, I feel humble there, and I really admire their courage and and their bravery at standing up and and giving their loved one a voice um, at long last for for many people because at the time of the tribunal, say there, there there was no mechanism for them to 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 really describe what kind of person their their loved one was, what kind of their hopes and their dreams. Um, and I feel, I feel it's, it's great that the inquests are starting off in this way to, to, to put families at the centre, to give them a voice at last. Um, but what it has done is really laid bare what, what the impact of that pain has been for so long. Absolutely. I can, I can well imagine it is, um, it is really a, a major situation. No question about it. And, and hopefully, whatever the outcome, the families will be able to get some sort of closure. And of course, as I say, 42 years by my calculations, unfortunately, that would suggest that an awful lot of the parents of, of the deceased people died in the interim without getting to this point, which is obviously another um, another thing that so many have to carry. Finally, Sean, on a technical level, legal representation at this, like, for example, uh, the, 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 uh, the 48 um, deceased people... They don't each have legal counsel or anything. And who else is represented apart from from the victims' families? Yeah. So as as I was referencing earlier, it took quite a long time from the inquest being ordered in 2019 to get to this point. And one of the reasons why it was delayed for quite some time is because they couldn't really figure out how to pay legal aid to all of the families of the victims because obviously this is such a large scale um, inquest. Um, that was finally resolved um, after after months of back and forth with the Department of Justice and the Legal Aid Board. So it's the case where all the families who are represented by Phoenix Law um, are having their, their costs covered. Um, there's one particular family who have uh, enlisted um, another set, uh, another legal team to represent them. But then you have representatives of the Garda Síochána, obviously who would have been uh, some among the first responders there that night. You have um, representatives for Dublin City Council. Um, obviously, Dublin Corporation would have been in charge of inspecting the building that night. And uh, also, Dublin Fire Brigade are within their remit. So they have representation. Um, uh, Eamon Butterley, who we described earlier, he has legal representation. So there's a, there's a wide gamut of, of interesting interested parties uh, at the inquests. And uh, of course, as we go through, 
all of them will get the chance to to question witnesses as we go. So I think that that that's one of the things that's adding up to the the expected uh, six month um, duration of the inquest. I can well believe it. Um, and a very very important process that it is. Sean, thank you very much for talking to us today, and we'll. If, if, if you're available and we can grab hold of you, we, we'll check in with you as the inquest goes along. Sean Murray, Irish Examiner reporter, thank you very much for joining us again today. Thanks, Mick. I'd also like to thank JJ Vernon, our engineer, as always. Thank you, folks, for listening. Take it easy, and we'll be back with you next week.